0: Hello, this is Dr. Marty Lustig, principal with NextGen Advisors. Welcome to our podcast series featuring senior leaders from NextGen Advisors team. I'm joined again today by my partners Graham Brown and Dr. Betty Rabinowitz. Welcome Graham and Betty. Good
1: morning, Marty. Nice to see you.
2: Hey, Marty. Uh, Good to be here.
0: This past September, We did a webinar on patient engagement that focused on how providers can build stronger connections with their patients using virtual visits, patient portals, and social media. In anticipation of a follow-up webinar on January 27th, today we're going to discuss the other critical aspect of patient engagement, the approaches used to help patients change their behaviors to improve their own health status. With so many of today's chronic health challenges driven by nutrition, physical activity, and stress, the need to effectively support behavior change is greater than ever. Betty, as you think about the patients you served, what themes come to mind in this regard?
2: Thanks, Marty. Uh, You know, my sense is that it was one of the biggest challenges of clinical practice uh, that I uh, experienced where I watched patients who had hugely negative consequences to uh, their behaviors, patients who had diabetes who weren 't able to uh, control their their weight and diet, uh, patients who drank uh, alcohol to an excess and lost jobs and marriages and and family relationships and it, it really was the biggest challenge to get people to change behavior and sustain that change. I think I watched people change behavior for brief periods and then kind of uh, go back to what they felt comfortable with and were used to. And um, it, it was extremely difficult to uh, remain connected and engaged uh, in, in spite of these uh, disappointments.
0: Interesting, Graham. As a non-physician, can you share what you've experienced when it comes to motivating behavior change?
1: Uh, sure, Marty. I, you know, and I'll answer this from my perspective in working with executives and their management teams, change on change initiatives, and how they, you know, pr- improve performance and other projects. So mastery, autonomy, and purpose are three pillars uh, of self-determination theory put forward by Deci and Ryan. And uh, that's a useful framework for, I think, how we understand why change can be hard to implement in the work environment. Because that's where, you know, unlike Betty and you, I have my background and expertise. When we think about, you know, first of all, as Betty was knowing, change is hard. It really challenges. If we use just an example, um, say in 2020, hundreds and hundreds of new providers started providing telehealth and virtual care. And that's kind of a fundamental way of doing business in a different manner, a clinical interaction in a different manner than they would have before. So if we think about that, um, you know, provider sense of mastery of that patient engagement, that discussion is really upended when we think about doing a task in a totally different way. So that sense of mastery that they have about how they work with their patients all of a sudden is is challenged. In an organization, uh, you know, no matter how inclusive a change initiative might be, who is at the table in designing it, ultimately they're gonna be workers who weren't involved in designing what that change is gonna look like. So again, to the virtual visit example, you might bring in a new, new platform and new technology. The folks don't have um, a sense of how this is gonna impact their work. Their sense of autonomy, their ability to decide how they do their work is already is now being imposed upon by some new tool or new process. So again, kind of another challenge to it. And then finally, if we think about how work gives us purpose and how interacting with a patient um, and the provider relationship is really key to motivating people to understanding what's going on. If we're using new tools and new approaches that can potentially place a temporary barrier to what that relationship looks like. Um, if the provider is focused on the tool and the technology instead of the patient, then how they incorporate that into their their model of care is one of these big changes it takes a while to overcome. So I think there's a, there's a big hurdle to get over when we just think about how we implement this in practice redesign. Um, and the virtual visit is probably a, a example that's fresh on people's minds from the past year on how change can be so difficult
0: interesting a pretty enlightened view i think i'd like to go back a little bit because as i think about this whole issue when i was in training i remember being told that i should always recommend my patients who smoked or abused alcohol that they should quit and that was pretty much the extent of my behavior change training uh the teaching point back then was that you know you never knew if at some point a patient would take the advice to heart and make a change and uh, kind of left it there Betty, I'd be curious if you can talk a little bit about how you see the science of supporting behavior change has has changed through your career.
2: Um, uh, We are about the same vintage, Marty, so I as well was uh, uh, trained that patients need to uh, be told uh, to quit. Interestingly, when you look at the science of that... When patients are asked whether their providers, smokers, whether their providers recommended smoking cessation, most, the majority of patients reported that they were never recommended to stop smoking. Now, obviously, there's a question here whether the recommendation was made and forgotten or not registered or mm-hmm. whether many physicians, even though strongly believed that the patients needed to stop smoking, didn't engage in that conversation because they felt so powerless and so helpless to, to really have that recommendation uh, meaningfully uh, followed. Over the years, we have developed a much more uh, better understanding of what works and what doesn't work. For example, we know that scaring patients, showing them pictures of destroyed lungs or uh, cirrhotic livers or people in uh, anguished uh, situations works. It might work for some patients, but for the majority of patients actually is very counterproductive. Patients disengage from the message, uh, go into a mode that really switches off communication around it. So scaring patients uh, isn't uh, any longer the, the, uh, a meaningful approach. I think in the webinar on the 27th, we will have this opportunity to have a national expert on motivation and self-determination theory, which is a construct that truly provides the uh, practical um, scaffolding for a meaningful intervention to try and work with patients in ways that create change that ultimately is sustainable uh it's still it it is difficult addiction addictions are difficult behaviors are very tightly held by patients uh, we all know how difficult it is to change what we
0: what we do Graham you want to add anything to that
1: I agree with Betty. You know, I think um, I think the research has shown that, you know, knowledge alone doesn't change behavior. Back to the smoking example, I remember um, I'm from Canada, as you guys know, and in Canada and many other countries, they changed the packaging on cigarettes to put a really big warning in big bold letters, smoking causes cancer. And then in Canada and other places, they started putting photos of damaged lungs or people with... Um, voice box tubes because they had had some dramatic surgery as a result of throat cancer or something. And, you know, ultimately it showed, to Betty's point, that worked for a very small percentage of individuals. Many other people then, you know, hid their cigarette pack, bought a leather case to go on the outside of their cigarette pack so they didn't have to look at the bad picture and they could put it out of their mind. When, you know, back to back to this motivational theory concept, when you've got many deeper needs that are being met by the addiction the knowledge about their damage doesn't necessarily motivate you to change you need to go deeper than that and so to like betty i'm really looking forward to what um uh, jeffrey williams uh, is going to be speaking about because i think he can really help us unravel this a little bit better and get a really deeper understanding of what does work
0: great One other uh, side of this we often see, uh, particularly with employers and health plans, that offer direct financial incentives uh, to folks for changing to more healthy behaviors. Betty, can you talk a little bit about what we've learned about that particular approach to behavior change?
2: Um, so it's a fascinating area, and uh, behavioral economics touches a lot on the power of incentives and the use of incentives. And, and obviously, we know that in other industries or in commercial endeavors, incentives drive customer behavior to to a great uh, extent. So it's completely natural to believe that it should be the same in healthcare. And even though there are areas in research and science that still completely support use of incentives in in healthcare as well, Uh, differential payment on premiums, discounts for patients who are not smokers, employers have been uh, fascinated by this option quite a bit. If you if you adhere to uh, motivational and self-determination theory, you understand the concept and the difference between internal motivation and external mot- motivation. And one of the uh, risks of external motivation is that when you remove the incentive, the behavior decays back to where it was before. So to the extent that you can create continuous incentives, and then it's not incentives, it's kind of something else, you can expect the behavior to continue, but that people will not be incorporating deep changes that allow them to sustain the change when the incentive is gone. I'm sure that there could be proponents of incentives in this area who would argue and show data that uh, they have had uh, successes, It will be interesting to pose this question to Dr. Williams uh, on the 27th.
0: Mm -hmm. You know, myself actually having dealt with this on the employer side a fair amount from my time at the health plan, one of the ways that employers think about these direct incentives is that even if they don't necessarily get people to change behaviors, they attract healthier people as employees because they essentially get a better benefit package if they have if they are he- if they have healthy behaviors than if they don't so it's you know the unintended consequences in this case for the employers are good ones but it also then discriminates against people who have health conditions in a not so subtle way
2: that's int- that's very interesting
0: um so a, a little bit of a twist on this one, you know, you mentioned other industries using them. Graham, can you talk a little bit about how you think about how healthcare comp- does really compares to other industries in in this whole area of behavior change?
1: Yeah, I think you know, I think healthcare is really a unique business. And I'll take it from the perspective of innovation in healthcare. When you think about, um, you know, a new diagnostic or a new treatment approach being discovered by a researcher, and they then publish their first paper, they present it to an audience, other clinicians review it, they start doing their own research, they validate that. Eventually in time, that practice or that approach may become the new common way to do clinical care. But it's really a long evolution to go from research table to practice in theory and it can be you know it's ramping up it's coming faster now than it used to um we certainly saw that with the covid19 vaccines and the sharing of information there but it's been a 10-year trajectory from from research bench to practice and i really can't think of any other industry that works that way when we think about the audio industry for example if a car company develops a new innovation that's a safety protocol or an advanced feature all of the other car companies try to adapt and adopt their platforms and their tools to to grab that innovation and bring it into their own product they don't want to see market share to the innovator and they want to be seen as just as uh, just as advanced and just as capable so i think that's very different when we think about healthcare how healthcare is practiced and the long window that it takes for change to come kind of at the practice level um, again, not being the clinician, I won't speak about how it uh, how it applies directly to patients.
0: Betty, your thoughts?
2: I think that it was interesting when when Graham spoke about healthcare as a business, um, it's an interesting, even to think of it for me in those terms, even though obviously I'm not naive to the fact that healthcare is a very large uh, business. But um, I think that the changes that we expect patients to make are difficult are challenging are associated and chronic conditions are associated with core challenges that are not like trying to convince a consumer to buy a brand one brand of a television or a different brand of a television or adopt one sneaker line versus another uh, sneaker line where or or create incentive programs to, for people to buy a new model of a car i think these are truly deep painful challenging behaviors that are so complex that there there's only so much we can deduce from consumerism uh for profit business and these very complex relationships uh, in healthcare between providers and patients patients and their Families, patients, and their diseases. Um, I think it's a it's a it's a unique reality.
0: Yeah, it seems to me one of the big differentiators is the is the time frame issue. Most of the time in healthcare, we're asking people to actually sacrifice things that are giving them short term play that are hitting their pleasure center. Uh, in order to avoid long-term negative consequences so there's never any real internal positive reinforcement for the behavior change it's mostly you know give up something that i'm getting a lot of satisfaction from right now in order to get something in the future that isn't entirely clear to me what i'm what i'm getting it's hard to think of other industries that have that steep of a hill to climb. In trying to motivate folks
1: yeah you know marty to that point i think you know with, with smoking versus drinking are interesting examples of vices here where smoking you know you may have a bit of a cough but you develop cancer in 20 years drinking you may stumble down the stairs and break your neck that night you may get into a fight mm-hmm. The the consequences with some of these behaviors can be much more rapidly experienced and so, you know, at the same time, the pleasure that you're describing that comes from the what's driving folks to drink or driving folks to smoke at the end of the day is still a need that needs to be satisfied, it needs to be recognized and either replaced with something else that's positive or be put at bay in recognition of that longer-term outcome that's a benefit. And that's a hard thing to get your head around.
2: And I think when you start mixing in addiction and and our understanding of the chemistry of addiction and it becomes i have worked with patients struggling to quit both smoking and drinking who by the time they quit or were forced to quit or were motivated to quit hated the habit so badly and and understood its its destructive force over them but were in the grips of of a terrible addiction. I think that, for example, uh, adopting exercise, which is neutral in terms of it's it's a bit different than an addiction like smoking or or eating or or drinking. Um, There's a behavior which is burdensome to some. Some people enjoy it tremendously. For me, uh, the the best time uh, exercising is when I've done it. I do it because I have to, it, I'm not one of these, I don't know what people are talking about these clouds of endorphins, uh, I, I take their word for it, but um, for me it's the satisfaction of knowing that I did what I needed to do. So there is a change where there isn't particular pleasure, it's just a commitment that you make to make an investment, it's really about investment. Uh, that, that's another uh, interesting uh, thing to motivate.
0: Well, thank you. I think I'll let that be the last word, Betty. As mentioned at the start of the podcast and actually a couple of times during the discussion, on January 27th at 2 p.m. Eastern, we'll be hosting a webinar on today's topic with our very special guest, Dr. Jeffrey Williams. Dr. Williams is a physician and health psychologist who has contributed greatly to the development of the self-determination theory model and he has extensive experience in its application into clinical practice. I'm sure you'll find this webinar both stimulating and of enormous practical value. To register, you can go to the events page of nextgen.com or click on the link in our blog for today's podcast. Thank you for joining us today. I'd like to thank my colleagues Dr. Betty Rabinowitz and Graham Brown for sharing their insights. As always, if you enjoyed the topic today, you can consider subscribing to our podcast. This is Dr. Marty Lustick with NextGen Healthcare, and have a great day.